This is ASHA Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. We're continuing our coverage of how CSD professionals are being affected by the coronavirus. And on this episode, we're headed to the epicenter. Until recently, the ICUs in New York City were facing a surge of patients testing positive with COVID-19, flooding hospitals and necessitating makeshift accommodations. On this episode, I'll be speaking with SLP Tammy Altschuler. Tammy works at the NYU Langone Medical Center, and I spoke with her for our March 25th episode on how the pandemic was affecting her work life. Today, Tammy shares stories of recovery, loss, sickness, stigma, and what she wants other SLPs facing the next big surge to know. I believe in all of my colleagues and their clinical skills, and I have no doubt that people will be able to meet their patients' needs. But there's such trauma and burnout And I'd like people to discuss more about how they can take care of themselves better. As cities across the country are watching positive tests surge and hospitals fill, we hear from someone who's been there already. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's online conference, Voice Evaluation and Treatment, Improving Outcomes for Children and Adults. The continuing education opportunity begins August 5th. Save $100 when you register. Learn more at on.asha.org voice. We've seen many states in the U.S. break their own single-day record for the number of coronavirus cases being confirmed in one day. And hotspots for the virus are showing up throughout the country. But earlier this month, we saw New York City, which was once the major U.S. hotspot, report a single day with zero deaths. At the NYU Langone Medical Center, Timmy Altschuler assists in patient provider communication and often helps patients with end-of-life communication. When we spoke in March, New York City was on the precipice of one of the largest COVID surges in the country. Here's what she said then. It's very likely that next week I won't be a speech pathologist and... I will be helping our RNs and MDs and running and getting them supplies or answering phones or carrying food trays. And so it's hard because my identity in the hospital is a speech pathologist, but knowing next week I'll probably be a healthcare worker and this is what I signed up for. And I'm proud to be able to do that though. When we caught up, I asked Tammy about what came next. She said she spent the next week mass-producing low-tech communication boards. We'll have more on that later in this episode. And then Tammy went on to fill me in on the past four months. She joined me by phone from her home in New York. It feels like we spoke years ago and not just a few months ago, but I have a feeling everyone kind of feels that way with our own timelines. I ended up getting sick with COVID. I was home for 10 days uh, with first the virus and then pneumonia. And that was hard. I'm not sure how I got it. And, and I'm going to stop trying to figure that out and focus on the fact that I'm thankfully fully recovered. And then I went back to work after 10 days. Can I ask what it was like for you to have COVID? And, and I want to say, I'm happy to hear that you've fully recovered. As an SLP, someone that was preparing to work with patients who perhaps would have COVID-19, what was it like for you to experience some of the symptoms? Well, first I had a fever and and body aches, and and then I would question it, well, maybe this is something else, and just think it's all in my head. I started feeling better, and then one day when I was actually planning on returning to work the next day, I realized 
that I was having some chest pains and shortness of breath. And being the speech pathologist I am, I started doing some speech tasks and realized that I couldn't really speak in full sentences. I would run out of air. So I made a virtual health appointment and, and they diagnosed me with pneumonia and being a speech pathologist in, in the hospital, my first question was, how can you do that without a chest x-ray? Send me to the hospital. And, and they told me they are not letting me go into the emergency room because if I didn't have COVID, and even though they were sure I did, that I would pretty much get it if I walk into the emergency room or if I had it, I could potentially contaminate others. So I start antibiotics and it was hard to not be at work knowing that my colleagues were dealing with the surge and yeah, I was kind of bored at home. <laughs> I, I was scary to be at home too because in New York at the time, it was nonstop sirens. And all day I was homesick and all night and I would just hear the sirens go on and on and, and have moments where I'd wonder if I was next. What kind of things were you thinking about at that time? I actually have a friend, uh, a distant friend, and right before I got sick, her husband passed away from COVID. And I think he was 42 and otherwise healthy. And um, she, I just watched her interview on CNN, and she talked about how she couldn't be at his bedside. And the provider had to hold up an iPhone, and, and she basically timed her husband to say goodbye. And I think that was really weighing on me and just thinking about this person who is healthy. And we're seeing this now, especially in Florida, that people who are in their 30s and 40s are getting really sick and dying too and just constantly monitoring my own symptoms and and really being cautious. I'm happy to hear you made a full recovery and that you were able to return to work. So we know the hospitals are making accommodations for an influx of COVID patients. I guess I'm wondering what it looked like when you returned to work compared to when you left. Visually, what was different inside? It was drastically different. When I was home, I kept in contact with some friends at work, and some people described it as a war zone, and I thought they were being really dramatic. So I didn't really appreciate what it would be like. But when I got back, Almost every floor in the hospital was converted to a COVID floor. And so we had units which were not ICUs, which became ICUs, or our pediatric ICU became an adult ICU for COVID. We had units which were not used in two years and empty, and they literally overnight made them into COVID units. So it was weird to be back on those units that we haven't walked through those halls in years and seeing the overnight changes, the equipment was, and I keep saying this in the past tense, but we still have a COVID ICU right now and I go to it every day. But at the time when we would walk through every unit, you'd see all of the equipment in the hallways. So IV poles, supplies, paper bags lining the hallways, taped to the walls, and they are filled with our reusable PPE. Um, I get one N95 mask a week, and and we carry it around in a paper bag and a face shield once a week, and that's in the bag too. We It's hard to find a nurse. The nurses would be at the bedside for a really long time and then go on to a next patient. So 
if I have a question or I need something, I couldn't really find someone to communicate with them very easily. You've explained how the environment's changed. How did your day-to-day work change as well? Well, our schedules changed, number one. Instead of doing five, eight-hour days, we changed to four, ten-hour days for some social distancing purposes. But also it actually helped with the workflow because the amount of time it takes to put on PPE and take it off And I would spend a lot more time with patients at the bedside uh, than I normally would. Just working a 10-hour day, I might see the same amount of patients I would in an eight-hour day. Also, I would spend a lot of time doing bedside care that I normally might do here and there, but not every time I'm with a patient. There were times where I'd be changing the sheets on the bed with with help from someone because it's not a job that you can really do on your own. There were nurses that we had that either were travel nurses from all over the country or nurses in our own hospital, but not typically on that unit or really ever worked in an ICU. And I ended up training them on bedside care. I was training them on oral care and on how to change the sheets when the patient is still in the bed on swallow strategies or communication strategies, all of these things that maybe they never encountered before in their nursing careers. You wrote about some of the people you worked with on Twitter, and I'd like to kind of quote a couple of those because they stuck with me. One thing that you wrote says, quote, there will be some trauma we will not forget in the hospital, but I will also not forget moments like this morning. My patient with a trach is able to speak again today, FaceTimed his wife so he can wish her a happy anniversary, first words in weeks, end quote. I was hoping you could maybe share what some of these experiences have been like to see recoveries and to work with these patients. It's so hard coming to work every day, and it's hard to keep up with the emotions. It really changes minute by minute. So one minute I might see a patient coding in the ICU and and passing away. And then the next minute I walk into another patient's room and see them off the ventilator, put a speaking valve on, and hear them talk for the first time in months. I've been doing a lot of FaceTime. And with that particular patient, his wife is a speech pathologist. And I was communicating with her every day about his progress and FaceTimed her when I knew he was able to speak with the speaking valve. And it's just really humbling to be a part of these moments that it's very intimate to witness, you know, husband saying happy anniversary to his wife. And those are the first words that he's saying in months. And yeah, so there's all different types of tears throughout the day. You know, there are those tears where I'm mourning for the patient who just passed away. And then there are those tears of joy for the patient that I'm seeing finally on a path of recovery. Are there other moments that you might be willing to share that have stuck with you? Yeah. Um, I remember one patient in particular on a Friday afternoon. He was using a speaking valve, and they were talking about having to place him back on the ventilator, and he was terrified of what that meant. He had a lot of understandable. He had a lot of anxiety, and he told me that he was nervous that he was going to die. And I didn't know what to say. I can't say, no, you're not. I, I don't know. And I just kind of held his hand, and which is weird because, you know, it's a gloved hand. It's not even direct contact with this other person. 
and and told him that I really hoped I would see him on Monday morning. And and I didn't. I came back to work and he had passed away over the weekend. And that was really hard thinking that I may have been one of those last conversations that he had. When we come back, Tammy shares what she's been doing to facilitate conversations in the ICU and what she did to find support during this difficult time. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's online conference, Voice Evaluation and Treatment, Improving Outcomes for Children and Adults. From August 5th to the 17th, this continuing education opportunity will share practical strategies for improving functional outcomes and quality of life. You can earn up to 2.7 ASHA CEUs. Save $100 when you register. Learn more at on.asha.org voice. You're a member of the Patient Provider Communication Task Force, founded by the Patient Provider Communication Forum, or PPC. The task force provides tools to clinicians, including English and bilingual resources. Because many patients with COVID are intubated, as you just said, and can't communicate, your team provided language boards and other tools. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those resources and the response to those resources. Yeah. In the middle of March, Dr. Richard Hertig, he is one of the pioneers for patient provider communication. And he reached out to a bunch of us who have already been addressing this in our respective hospitals. And he anticipated this surge in patients who would be unable to speak and said, we have to do something. And so in such rapid time, we quickly created these communication boards and multiple languages and multiple uh, levels of abilities. Um, Some are text, some are alphabet boards, some are picture based with all different targets. And we got them up on the site. And I don't have the analytics on hand right now, but there's been an amazing global response with how many downloads and how many have been made to the site. And it's incredible to see how other countries are using these resources and how they've adapted it to their own needs. Uh, There's a group in the Philippines that came out with their own handbook and and in Puerto Rico, and um, it's incredible to be a part of this. It's interesting, a few months ago, like maybe in the end of May or June, we started slowing down the work we were doing just a little bit and feeling that it was okay to take a little bit of a rest. And then in the past few weeks, as we see the surge happening in other countries like India, Brazil, or in our own country and some of our states, we're realizing that there's so much more work to do. I saw that uh, in another tweet that you were quoting a, a patient who was intubated and he got the tube out. And when his tube was removed, you said that he said, uh, I'm going to quote your uh, Twitter again, that he said, I want you to hear my first voice. You gave me my second voice with the communication board. What was your reaction when he said that? Oh, it was it was so amazing. The nurse called me. And he asked me to come to the patient's bedside as soon as I can. And I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> what did I do? What happened? Um, I don't think he would say that if there was a change in status. I'm not the person he would be calling. So when I got there and I still had to put all of my PPE on and, and went into the room and just heard his voice for the first time. And I've been working with him for so long and didn't hear his voice. And it was just amazing to hear him say that and and that he... He looked at his communication board as his voice, and that was 
really amazing. There's another tweet that you included about uh, communication with patients. And this is about how you would write information on the window outside of a patient's room. You can read on the glass in red marker words like father, businessman, the specific example said daughter getting married in four weeks. When you're in this type of environment, is it helpful to have these types of reminders of people's humanity and who they are? Absolutely. It's always a reminder, you know, before a pandemic, you try to connect with a patient other than them being a patient and what their life is like outside. And it's, it's hard to do that when there's no one at the bedside. And when you have all of this PPE on, and when they're intubated or a trach event, and they cannot speak. And so just to have a little bit of that information, it gives a little starting point to some kind of discussion that you can have with them. It also reminds you to just take off that COVID layer for a moment and see the patient for who they are. You know, I hate talking about patients in a past tense when someone says, oh, they used to work here or um, they were planning on attending this wedding. And I, I really try to focus on talking about the patient still in their present tense and all of the things that they enjoy and, and do. And It's just a really valuable way to connect with someone. Since you had COVID yourself, do you think that may have changed the way that you interact and see the patients? Yeah, when when I got back to work, I had these mixed feelings. One, I felt like this champion, kind of like, I got this, I beat this, and and look at me, and, and I'm ready to fight this, I'm ready to be on the front lines, and and, you know, COVID come at me kind of uh, feeling. But then there was a bit of a survivor's guilt because I never had to be hospitalized. And my biggest issue after COVID for a few weeks after I returned to work was just this constant fatigue. And that was really hard to beat, but that was the worst of it. And then I go back and see people my age on the ventilator and barely awake and barely surviving and and some dying. And I just had this survivor's guilt walking in and seeing them. I did feel that I could connect with patients. I don't want to say more than anyone else, but I had one patient who, when he was able to use a speaking valve, the first thing he expressed was that he felt embarrassed. And when I probed a little more, he said that he thought that people in his community and his family and his friends would think that he was dirty for getting COVID or that he just didn't wash his hands enough and that's how he got it. And we just had this moment of really connecting and and I said, hey, like I just had it and I hope that means you're in good company. And, and then I started naming all of these celebrities. You know, I said, you know, Tom Hanks and Idris Elba and um, all these people had it too and we're in good company and it's not a bad thing. Later in the conversation, I asked Tammy about patients with COVID-19 who were eventually discharged from the hospital. I wanted to know what would be next for them with regards to their ability to communicate. Most of them leaving are able to speak. It was really rapid how things happened. I mean, once we got a patient off the ventilator, I would go see them and try speaking valves. Very often, thankfully, people were able to speak right away with it. That's not always the case for a few different reasons. 
And then if they're tolerating that, then we would go on to having them try to eat and drink and doing a swallow evaluation. And there would be this rapid progression from being on the ventilator to maybe a few days later getting decannulated and either getting discharged home or discharged to rehab. And so a lot of them didn't have very specific communication needs, but there have been quite a few who were delirious and had some profound cognitive difficulties. We've had a lot of patients who were discharged to long-term care facilities and they were still in the ventilator. And so I would make sure that they had their low-tech, the, the communication boards that would be discharged with them. But it was always really hard seeing those patients leave and not knowing if there would be that continuity of care to meet their communication needs in another facility. Not every hospital, not every skilled nursing facility or long-term acute care facility prioritize communication. What are the lessons that you learned from being in New York City during this surge? And, and what would you share with other SLPs who might be preparing for something perhaps similar? I think the biggest thing is I see um, a lot of on Facebook pages for SLPs. People are wanting to know about our protocols and maybe some guidelines for how to provide the best care for patients with COVID and, and also in the safest way possible. And I'd like to see more discussions on self-care. And I believe in all of my colleagues and their clinical skills. And I have no doubt that people will be able to meet their patients' needs. But there's such trauma and burnout. And I'd like people to discuss more about how they can take care of themselves better. Kind of related to that, I saw a lot of support going towards you and going towards the NYU uh, Langone Medical Center. Uh, I saw sort of tributes from people like Tina Fey uh, and a musical tribute from one of NYU's own surgeons. Could you talk a little bit about if you felt supported at this time and was there a sense of community? Definitely. There were some really amazing moments of just feeling valued and supported. I mean, in New York City at 7 p.m., we have these clap outs. And what started happening in April was FDNY would come in front of the hospital with all of their fire trucks and they would salute us. And it was amazing to see these first responders and these people who save lives come and honor us. And and we would stand out and clap for them and thank them for their service too. And those were really powerful moments. But there were also moments, and I still feel this way, where I feel a little ostracized or like a pariah almost for working in a hospital. I went to a grocery store a few weeks ago and I always change out of my scrubs before I leave the hospital. And I don't know what happened that day. For some reason, I didn't. Um, and so I left work, uh, still in my scrubs, and I went to the store. And um, I got these horrible stares from people. And someone actually said something to me that I had no place going into a grocery store with my scrubs and that I was going to infect everyone in the store. 
and I'm supposed to be a healthcare worker and care about these things. So it's a lot of mixed emotions about being supported and then also being really just feeling really removed from other people. It's really hard. Was there any place that you went for support with these emotions? I started therapy. I realized that with the trauma that uh, was going on, that I really just needed a little more help than my friends and family could provide. And in New York State, they waived co-pays and, and all the fees for teletherapy. So I was able to start that virtually. Did you find that to be helpful? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that there's counseling specific to healthcare workers that is needed right now. Tim, is there anything else that you want to share? Any other memories that stand out to you over the past few months or uh, things that you wish people understood or knew? That's a good question. It's not over. And that just, I don't know when this is going to end. I'm already, like I said, preparing for potential second wave and just taking care of ourselves and each other. And if that means wearing a mask or social distancing, and it's hard. I still see like group pictures of nurses or friends. And I get it that like, we're all trying to connect in some way right now. It's really hard to see these photos of healthcare workers in groups and huddling close together. And it's like, well, I know we're healthcare workers, but we should still be wearing we should still be wearing the mask too. We don't we don't get exempt from this. But just taking care of each other. I'm gonna ask you one more question. I saw data from the New York Times in early July that the the Langone Medical Center uh, was outperforming other area hospitals. That Langone saw deaths in about 11% of their patients with COVID-19. And it says some of the other area hospitals in New York saw about twice the number of deaths. And I think this data can like it can stir a variety of emotions, sadness for the 11% who died, but also happiness, right, that your hospital could be finding success. And I think that success should be celebrated, but also... I know a lot of people are looking at health disparities right now, especially involving race. I guess I was just wondering if those disparities were also on the mind of the staff working in the hospital. Absolutely. NYU is two blocks away from Bellevue, which is a city hospital. And the people who are our most vulnerable with racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, and health disparities go to Bellevue. And we have some of those patients who go to NYU, but there is a clear divide between the two. And it's so interesting because in April, May, and June, you could walk down First Avenue where the two hospitals are, and in between the two were these mobile morgues, these refrigerated trucks and they were just sitting there and you could just sense this loss and it's just such a visual image of having these refrigerated trucks between the two hospitals and knowing that it's kind of like this equalizer but at the same time it's not because the people filling the trucks even more were those patients from Bellevue. 
you know, you mentioned that you were aware of the disparities and I was just wondering what some of your thoughts were on the subject. Yeah. When I look at the patients who I had and and still have, the patients who are still recovering, they might be COVID negative now. They might have three negative swabs, but there's still COVID in our minds because that's, that's what they're recovering from. It's mostly people who are immigrants and who speak another language. When I see patients with COVID all day, I'm using interpreters and who don't have insurance. And it's really hard to see people who are so sick and yet so not supported in many ways. And it really shows you how these patients ended up in the medical situation that they're in and also how they have just a longer path to recovery because of the resources that they might not have. Tammy Altshuler, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate it. Thanks. And and thank you for the work that you did in the ICU with all of the patients with and without COVID. Thank you very much. We'll put a link to the communication resources provided by Tammy and the PPC on the blog post for this episode. Find it at leader.pubs.asha.org. Earlier in the conversation, we heard Tammy discuss the importance of self-care and taking care of your mental health. You can find information that addresses loss and grief, isolation and loneliness, and more at asha.org. You'll also find phone numbers you can call if you're seeking help. We'll put a link to those resources on the blog post for this episode as well. Also, as a reminder, you can find many setting-specific resources for COVID-19 at ASHA.org. Look for the COVID-19 Updates banner. Recent additions include a list of research articles related to speech-language pathology services in healthcare and guidance for using masks during in-person service delivery. That's all at ASHA.org. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's online conference on voice. It's called Voice Evaluation and Treatment, Improving Outcomes for Children and Adults, and it begins August 5th. Save $100 when you register. Learn more at on.asha.org voice. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.